I like libraries. You don't get that with Kindle. I mean, you get the volume, but you don't get the smell of the old books, do you? I was in, a few years back, in the Bibb County Library and was drifting through the stacks there. And in the religion section, I came across a book that was entitled, What to Do Until the Messiah Comes. Pretty fascinating title. I plucked it off the shelf and read it while standing there. It was a short little book, mostly filled with pictures. And it was interesting what the author had in mind to share. None of it was bad. It was very interesting. He was suggesting in his writings and in the photography that we spend our time in meditation waiting on Jesus, that we light candles and prayer was an important part of what he was focusing on. He, he included a little bit of yoga in that, which I'm okay with too, because I think that yoga itself can be a, a beautiful form of prayer language. He included some pictures of the burning of incense, Just this waiting, this place of waiting. And I liked that. But the more I reflected on it, the more I thought, this is not Luke's idea at all of what to do until the Messiah comes. Luke, this great writer of the New Testament gospel story, had a very different concept of what Jesus was calling us to do while waiting on his return. Luke remembered that Jesus' call was for us to divest ourselves of those things that are our own. In fact, if you were listening to the scripture as Bob read it just a few moments ago, Luke remembers that Jesus said, sell off your property. Now, just in case you think that this was a momentary theme for Luke, all throughout the telling of the gospel, you will find Jesus, as remembered by Luke, speaking these same words about the importance of the disciples divesting themselves of what they own. In fact, even into Luke part 2, which is the gospel that is found in Acts, the telling of the story, the sharing of the gospel with others, Luke having written this as well. In the very beginning of the church, you'll see that Luke remembers that when the church gathered, that they were selling their possessions and bringing their alms together in order to care for those that were in need in the community. This is difficult for me. This is difficult for me. Last week, we were focused on Scripture. For those of you who were here, you will remember that Jonathan and I were speaking about a man that Jesus told about in a story who had been so 
advantaged by his planting of crops that yielded great resources that he tore down his barns and built new barns in which to store the grain that was coming in in such large measure. I have a feeling that this was the story of his life. I don't know how long the barns had been there that were torn down, but I have a feeling that this guy was one of those fellows that just was not able to do anything, that did not have great success. You know those kind of folk around. And this fellow was tearing down his barns in order to build new barns that he could store the grain. And I have a feeling would have had to deal with the same situation the year after because he was going to make more money for having planted more grain. And so he was going to need more barns. But I struggle with this. You see, I, I think I have this same affliction. I'm not sure. I think I'm akin to this fellow that was building barns, but I, there's a part of me that says, no, you're not like this guy. You're not rich like he was, and you're not building larger and larger barns. And it may be that you put yourself in that same category as me. I sort of think of myself as being middle class, very firmly plunked down in middle classdom, whatever that may be. At times, in fact, I think to myself, well, now, it's, it's not quite enough to call it that, but I know that it is. I would never call it wealth. In fact, I don't know that many wealthy people. I don't know anybody, I don't think, that would actually call themselves wealthy because we're always comparing ourselves to those people who have more than we do, not those that have less than we do. That's one of the facts of our lives that I've seen in our culture. And so we think to ourselves that we are those that have less. And so the scripture, there's a place in which it doesn't seem applicable to us. But when I'm really honest with myself, I know that I am continually gathering in things. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Even small things that are gathered in until there is this great mound of stuff that I have that I call my own. A couple of days ago, I got a new phone. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> it's, it is smarter than I am. And it does things that I, I don't know why it does it. But... Maybe I will figure that out. I, I don't know um, if I got this phone because I needed it or because I wanted it. On the one hand, I told myself this is something that I need for my work. But I've been thinking about this for several months now. And I got it. And I don't know. Was that a need or was it a want? It's confusing to me. I read what Will Williman wrote on this very matter about his own reflections. He said, I do not know how to extricate myself from the web of complicity that characterizes our consumptive economy. Boy, he hit the nail on the head for me there. 
I don't know what to do with all of that. This constant gathering in is a part of not only who I am, but who my culture tells me to be. Whatever fits, in fact, even those things that don't quite fit, there is this sense of need to let that be an expression of who I am. And our churches are plagued by this very thing. Now, I know that some of you are probably checking out right now and thinking to yourself, is this another stewardship sermon? We talked about last week some stewardship, and we haven't even gotten to our false stewardship emphasis yet. You may be thinking to yourself, is this going to go on forever? And I'm going to tell you, yes. It will, because I, I do believe that we are called, we are being called into a new understanding, lest some of you think, well, stewardship is going to be those three weeks in September or October, and I can just maybe miss those Sundays and come back and think, well, what's happened here, you know? But we are seeking in consultation, the finance committee and, and staff are thinking of ways in which we can not let ourselves off the hook so easily, but think about our role, our celebrative role in being generous people all year round, creating this culture of tithing, which is so much better than our relegating it to just a short time period in which we think of our responsibility and then put it behind us. Churches are particularly plagued by this. If we allow ourselves to think about it, I, I wonder to myself, you know, I just throw up my hands and think, what can we do? Because we're just like our culture. We think to ourselves, what do we need? And so we go out and get what we need whether we are able fully to afford it or not, in expectation of what everybody else may be doing. And I want to raise the question, is this something that we need or is this something that we want? And still there is this big question, always. This would not be a question, I do not believe, if you and I, we're as invested, invested in giving in the way that Christ expects for us to be. Fred Craddock, for me, is the world's greatest preacher. He is remarkable, not only in the way in which he fashions a message, but his insight to the scripture. He is Michelangelo with his brush. I am the guy that stands beside the road carving logs with a chainsaw. But Fred Craddock is this artist in motion. Craddock said of this passage, he said, it is striking that churches, timid and tentative, 
on the subject of money have taught that where the heart is, there the treasure will be. After reaping a harvest of hearts, but very little support for the budget, some have come to acknowledge the realism of Jesus' words. Where possessions are, there the heart will be. You hear what I'm saying? It's far easier for us to talk about, will you give your heart to Jesus, than it is for me to stand here and to say, will you give your resources to the work of Christ? I chase cars to read bumper stickers. I admitted that to someone recently that I had seen a truck. Now this truck, I think this truck had termites. It looked pretty bad. <laughs> it was bad. And, and it came by me and I, I had to speed up just a little bit to catch up with him because he had a bumper sticker and I was determined to read it. And when I got up close enough to read it, I thought, this is just too good. I smiled to myself because the bumper sticker simply said, ain't God good. And I thought, what planet is this guy from? <laughs> Doesn't he know what kind of truck he's driving? I know you're saying to yourself, it's probably just a secondhand truck. You know, it's just that thing that he parks out in the backyard. I don't know. You know, I got up next to this guy in the truck and the guy looked about as bad as the truck did, you know? <laughs> and I thought, this is wonderful. This is wonderful that he is so convinced that in his situation that God is doing him some good favor. Now, I, I want to believe, I want to believe that in some precious way, I don't know who he is, I want to believe that in some way he had learned the secret of perhaps divesting himself of some of those possessions that might have taken hold of his life. Jesus is great about telling stories, isn't he? To explain things. But there are stories that never fit exactly into our idea of what a story should be. We call them parables. And they always turn life upside down. And here it's no exception because Jesus speaks to us of two situations to explain what he's trying to say to his disciples. But the stories, if you're not careful, will leave you more confused than the original thing that he began to say. Jesus was interesting. He did that kind of thing. And then he would walk away and say, what those... Those that understand will understand and those that don't won't. He said, he said it's like a guy, he said it's like a, a master who has gone off to a wedding, a couple of days journey away perhaps maybe, and he's left his slaves in charge of the household. And those slaves could take the opportunity if they thought they wanted to do so and act as if We've got a little vacation here. I mean, what's he going to know? Let's do some fun stuff. And yet, that's not what they did. They acted as if he were still there. 
They acted as if the master was still at home with them and went about their duties and were faithful to keeping the house in the way that you might expect to do it if he was there. But he wasn't there. But when he came back, he discovered that they had kept things pretty good. And he was pleased with them. Now, it's interesting because the, this little story is a reminder to us of just the fact that, you know, what do you do until the Messiah comes? Act like the Messiah is already here, friends. Act, act like he's already here. You live with your life. You live with your possessions. You give your possessions. You, you act like he's already here. And let me tell you, if you act like he's already here, when he returns, he will be pleased with the fact that you have done so. Now, he will turn the tables on you, with, even with this story. It's interesting, isn't it? Because he comes back home. He doesn't just simply throw his hands up. He says, okay, bring me a great meal. I know that you're ready to do that. You know what he does? He says, you sit down at the table. You sit down at the table. Let me wait on you. Now, this is the crazy thing about this parable. This parable turns things completely upside down. The master is to be served. No. No. This master comes to serve those who have learned what it means to follow him in service. There are great illusions in society and Jesus knew that in his day particularly around the subject of security in our day it is rampant that we seek to convince ourselves that we are safe he knew that another parable was needed you and I live in our homes and lock our doors and we feel secure when we go to bed at night, we may have six or seven locks that we bolt that front door with. And we feel completely at peace laying our head down on that pillow. may even have something hidden under that pillow just in case. But you know you'll never have to use that. We feel secure. Never occurring to us that that little bathroom window only has one tiny lock on it that a thief could slip in. You and I convince ourselves that our lives are so secure, all our possessions in place. Nothing could happen to rob us of the good fortune that leaves us with the things that we have. And yet there's every kind of evil that's lurking around, ready to surprise us. I love my brother. He is quite the provocateur when it comes to preaching. He's at a church up in Macon, and he says things just to set people off sometimes, I believe. My brother had a woman in his congregation years ago there in Macon 
who was upset about an establishment just south of town called Whiskey River. Don't tell me if you've been there, okay? <laughs> but it was fairly new then, and, and this lady particularly was incensed that it had found a place in the society and that people were going there in droves and so she said to Tim she said she said I was driving by Whiskey River the other day and my window was down and I just I just could feel the evil the evil coming out of that place now I I don't want to say that evil might not have been going on in Whiskey River evil goes on everywhere it's everywhere that you look if you perceive, you can find evil all over. But she said, she said, I could just feel the spirits coming through the air. And she said, I rolled up my window. Now, <laughs> my brother had the, the foresight to look her in the eye and to say, what makes you think that evil spirits can't pass through plate glass? Only he could say something like that to a parishioner. Fear drives our lives. It drives our lives. We are, we are so frightened of, of losing those things that are precious to us. I, I like to watch YouTube videos and you can see some strange things on YouTube videos. Sue and I were looking at some videos just in the last couple of days, and she, she said, here, here. She said, look at this. And I looked, and she said, this is, this is just crazy. But it's a new form of burglary in which you pull up, a lady pulls up maybe to the gas pump, and without her knowing it, as she's getting out her door, out her door to pump her gas. At the same time she opens her door, somebody pulls in the opposite direction as if they're going to be at the next pump, but they have their door that is coming open. They open her other door while she's looking over at the pump. They grab her purse. They've gotten out and gone before she even knows anything's going on. Does that leave you insecure thinking about going up to get your gas now? It'll work you over. It's an interesting thing how secure we feel at any given moment. That our security in some way is fastened down and locked in place by these measures that we set up. Jesus is saying that that's not where our security is found. And then he shares this story. He said it's like the thief coming in the night. I mean, if you're the owner of the house, if you knew that the thief was coming at a certain time, you would stay awake in order to keep the thief out, right? That only makes sense. I mean, you know, 
don't go away from your house. That's the ultimate security measure here. Don't leave the house. Something bad is going to happen. You know, don't go on vacation. Something bad is bound to happen to your things at home. Don't leave the house because you've got to stay there and protect it. Jesus says that this thief that comes in the night is interesting because this thief is no normal thief. This thief is the son of man himself. Now, wait a minute. We were talking about bad stuff. Now we're talking about good stuff, right? I like the way Barbara Brown Taylor refers to this thief. Barbara Brown Taylor says that this thief is God's thief. This beloved thief who comes not to take but to give. In fact, this thief doesn't come to take from you but to empty his pockets with all that he's got this has been the message of Jesus from the very beginning in this conversation where he started with the words if you'll remember do not be what afraid do not be afraid I believe that God calls us to live in a different way. The more we find ourselves controlled by our possessions, the worse it will be. Why? Because possessions are evil? No. I'm not going to judge the kind of car you drive. I'm not going to judge the kind of house you live in. I'm not going to judge the way in which you spend your money. You think on this, though with me how does God look at it all are these distractions from what he wants to do with these resources and so we come to the close of this service <laughs> and I open this altar, I want to give an invitation here to this altar for anyone who may be afraid of events that are occurring right now in your life, or if you know someone in your family or a friend of yours who is afraid, come and lift up a prayer for them. I also want to open this altar. If there's anyone here this day who has not seen the clarity of who Jesus is and what he's about, and yet you know, you know in your heart that you have been pricked by something that is brand new, and you want to be a part of that, at least you think you do. You may not know whether you need this or you want it, but there is something that is real about it 
I want you to know that Christ invites you to be a follower of his. This altar is open in our singing of our final hymn. It is a very simple, simple chorus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let's stand together as we share.